With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. This morning, we return back to our ongoing work on the system of dispensationalism. But before we get there, to handle this in a more before we get to all the technical parts and all of the difficulties with this, I want to continue to drive this point home, all right? Because when the person sitting in the pew, they sometimes don't realize this, but it's one of those things that whether you want the responsibility, the minute you decided to not to be, be Catholic, you inherited a responsibility, right? So people who sit in the pew of a non-Catholic church On one hand, they want the power, the authority to do what? To to judge if teaching is right or is wrong, right? They want the power to interpret the Bible. They want the authority to do what? To judge whether what they are hearing is right and wrong. In fact, you're typically taught whose responsibility is it to do that. It's your responsibility. So you're going to sit in the pew, you're going to tell the pastor, it doesn't matter how much education he has, you're going to say he is right or he is wrong, and then you will either go start another church or go to another church, and then until you declare him to be wrong, then you will go to another one. But you have that right responsibility. Now, that, that sounds wonderful. Everyone likes to do it because everyone loves to say, well, I just disagree with what he said. Everyone loves to do that. But what drives, from the, from the pulpit perspective, from the pew perspective, you're just like, well, this is a great game. I get to tell if someone is right or someone's wrong. I get to make the determination, and I get to go to the church that agrees with me. Right? That, that, that's good from your perspective. From the pulpit perspective, then, it's like, okay, you want the responsibility, then what comes with that responsibility? Should come with a lot of work, right? In other words, you should be, who should, if you're the one doing the judging, who should be the one who has mastered the Bible? You. If you're the judge, who should be the one who has mastered church history? You. Who should be the one who masters all different systems of theology? You. But the reality is, we, isn't it weird the way it works in the Protestant church? Pastors are expected to go to school to get the education, to stand here to preach, but the people judging him are not, are not they don't seem to think they have the responsibility to have, they would then have to have as much education, right? Isn't it kind of weird? Like if you're going to be doing the one judging, who should be the one judging? The one with more education or less education? 
Should be more. Isn't the whole system weird that way? It works that way. But the point is, is if you're going to sit there and do that, then you have a responsibility to be able to determine this very important thing. Because you claim, the, the reason Christians make that claim that they have that right and that power and that authority is they claim the right and power and authority is, is found where? In Scripture. So they're saying, I'm not doing it. Scripture is doing it. Okay, well, that's, that sounds really good, right? Well, if Scripture is the one judging and you're using Scripture to judge, then you must be a master of Scripture, right? This is what you must be the master of. And I am arguing that no matter how much Christians want to claim that this is the source and this is the authority and this is what they've mastered, the reality they haven't. Because from very early on in your Christian life, you were told this is what you believe and then you were showing verses that supposedly support what you believe. But in reality, you were being given a system. And that system really works like this. Here's the Bible, and the system is here, right? And then guess what you find? You, you read the system into the scriptures. And so then what is really the governing principle of your hermeneutic? The system. Meaning that what's no longer the authority? The scripture. Now, everyone would say that's wrong. That's what we condemn Catholics for. But we do the exact same thing. Instead of being a Pope Benedict or a Pope Francis or a Pope John Paul, it's Pope whomever we have established is right. And who gets to determine if they're right? We do. The whole system is so broken. So you say, well, then how do we fix it? There's only one way to fix it, right? What's the only way to fix it? It's to try to get people back to Scripture. But you can't get people back to Scripture until they have processed the ability to identify the system that has so influenced their hermeneutic so that they can see that influence upon the Scripture and they can start read, stop reading it into the Scripture and go to the Scripture. And the minute you start doing that, people get very uncomfortable, right? Why do people get uncomfortable? Because whether they like it or not, their system has become security blanket. And you're supposed to just, what, the, what people do is they just kind of hire people to tell them what they want to hear. But if you say, we're not going to, we're going to, we're going to try to get rid of the system and we're going to get to the scriptures, people don't really want to get to the scriptures as much as they claim they do. Because if you really get to the scriptures, is everything always so simple and clear and easy? No, people just want little Bible studies that, that really just reflect the system which they're comfortable with. Well, if you want that, then there should be no... Don't even bother going to church. Just sit at home with a little devotional and you'll be happy. But some people go to church more for the social function than they actually... They don't actually want to get to the actual issue here. So one of the things I'm trying to demonstrate in this whole thing, and I've repeated now multiple times, is that the system becomes the hermeneutic. Once the system becomes the hermeneutic, stop claiming that the Bible is the authority because your system is the authority. And if you cannot see that, then, then that's the problem. So we are taking a system that is very well known in the evangelical world, known as dispensationalism, to try to demonstrate how it impacts the, the hermeneutic. And then we're trying to determine, and then we, but we're trying to do so in a way, are we saying that dispensationalism is right? Are we saying that it's wrong? What we're saying is, here is the system. How does it impact? 
How does it impact? And we've been working through it and working through it. So we, we, we're taking a unique approach because we're basically just going into the 1917 Schofield Bible and following how the system is laid out. I could, it could be much easier. I could just get a book that says, here's what Schofield said, but I don't want to do that because I want you to see how it's laid out in history. Now there's the historical part of this and to show you how easy you can just now read it into the text. It can just become the default position without even realizing it. So we've been working on this and we've made it pretty far. And uh, we're going to, I can't, I don't have a lot of time to, I don't really have a lot of time to review, but I will at least do this. So let's go back and do this. I'm uh, turning to page, I think, five of the uh, Schofield 1917 edition. And here is the, some of the basic things that we've established. We've established a basic working definition of a dispensation. A basic working definition of a dispensation is that it is a period of time. Everyone should get that. It is a period of time which man is tested. It's a period of time in which there is a test. All right? There's a starting point. There's an ending point. These tests so far always end with failure and judgment, and then a change takes place. That change is very important. A law and how many dispensations are there? Seven. Those dispensations are, everyone should at least have these memorized. Number one is innocency. Number two, conscience. Number three, human government. Number four, promise. Number five, law. Number six, grace. And number seven, kingdom. Those are the seven dispensations. We've made it to number... Three, that's where we are. That's where we ended in the last hour. We have a lot to work on those, but we're going to work on number three because three has is, three is caused all kinds of problems, okay? Three is difficult, all right? Mainly for the timing of it, all right? But we, we, I think we worked some of that out. So three, but at the same time, this is so radically important. Not only does Schofield establish these dispensations, he establishes how many covenants? Eight covenants. Those eight covenants are... At, the Adenic, the Adamic, Noic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Palestinian, Davidic, and the New. Now, why is this so important? Because he establishes eight within these covenants. Guess what he's established so far? We've looked at how many? Two so far. We looked at the Adenic and we looked at the Adamic. We're about to look at the Noic here in just a second. Guess what he's established? Not, and this is very important. He has linked the dispensations and the covenants very much together. And this is often overlooked when people study dispensationalism because you come to church and are like, we're going to study dispensationalism today. Here's the seven dispensations. And they give you about a half a paragraph summary of each one. And you're like, oh, and everyone walks around going, I know about dispensationalism. And you don't know a clue, right? But so we're, we're trying to take a different approach because he connects the covenants with the, the dispensations. And there are eight covenants. Now, guess what he's done with these covenants? These covenants seem to contain, they seem to all be based so far on a concept of works. Do this, do this, do this, and they seem to be filled with judgment and failure. So the covenants seem to be workspace and the dispensations seem to be workspace. And so far, in every one of them, the Adenic, the Adamic, and uh, the dispensations have all ended in failure. 
And, and this is very important because remember, there's an, an, another system that dominates churches that you may know people who go to because they may claim to be more reformed and they hold to a covenantal perspective. And the covenantal perspective believes basically there's how many covenants? Two. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. And that all these covenants in the Old Testament are simply administrations of the covenant of grace. We felt, we found, we discovered that we felt that that's a majorly, majorly problematic. Because when we read Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm making a new covenant, not like the ones before. That would mean that they're not outworkings of what, no, it seems like it's a completely new one, right? And these other covenants seem to be very works-based. So we, and so once again, those are two systems. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Because whether you know it or not, you've adopted one of those systems and you read the Bible, you're reading into the Bible what you've been taught in regards to those systems. You can't remove, you can't remove the thing that's blinding you from the scripture until you can identify the thing that is blinding you. Right? You've got to note that you're wearing glasses and go, wait a minute, these glasses are messing up everything I see. And the minute though you take off the glasses, how does the church react when you take off the glasses? Oh, how dare you take off our, our, our system? Our system, stay with my system. Well, I don't care about your system. I really don't. And the fact that I don't care about the system only puts, it's detrimental for me. It's not, it doesn't benefit me. It, you would hope that all Christians would be like, down with the system, let's get back to the scriptures. But people don't really believe that, all right? So we've been trying to, to figure these out. So we're gonna look now here. That, that kind of just is a quick review and trying to make it very practical. Here we go. We are going to jump to uh, a discussion about the Noahic covenant, all right? Well, and then I'll back back up, look at the third dispensation and see where the third dispensation ends and we're going to try to move to the fourth dispensation, all right? We did not cover this in the last hour. Here is the Noahic covenant. Now, so far, every single time Schofield identifies one of the covenants, he almost without fail says that there's how many elements? Seven. He loves the number seven, right? Okay, he loves to break things down into numbers. So let's see if he gives us some seven elements for the Noahic covenant. We've looked at the Edenic, we've looked at the Adamic. Now we're going to look at the Noahic. Let's see what he does here. You ready? Here we go. The Noahic covenant, the elements are, number one, the relation of man to the earth under the Adamic covenant is confirmed. The relation of man to the earth under the Adamic covenant is confirmed. Someone look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. All right, Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Everybody see that? Look in verse 20. Noah builded what? Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. He built an altar unto the Lord and he took of every clean beast... Of, and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his, 
in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will shall not cease. All right? So he's saying that this establishes the relation of man to the earth and as as placed under the Edemic covenant, all right, that it's confirmed. Number two, the order of nature is confirmed. The or, or, order of nature is conform, confirmed, and he says that's in Genesis 8.22. When he talks about the order of nature, what he's referencing. Look at verse 22 again. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night. What is he referring to as the order? Seasons, right? Night and day. Are you getting that? He's saying he's, a st- he's, he's confirming that order. Everybody got that? Now, the big one, which is very much a part of the third dispensation, the third part of the Noahic covenant is human government is established. Human government is established. Does everybody know where the human government is established according to the Noahic covenant? It's in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Right? Does everyone see how human government is established here? Let's read it. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea and your hand, into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood... Of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man his blood be shed. Does everyone see that? Let me read that again. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, that next sent part, by man shall his blood be shed. What is that saying? It's it's capital punishment, but it's to be carried out by whom? By man. Okay, therefore that establishes human government. It establishes human government. It establishes human government. Does everybody see that? Who's carrying out the punishment? Man. That means man has to have an authority in order to carry this out. That's establishing human government, okay? This is the establishment of human government. So everybody see that? So the Noahic covenant, number one, the relation of man to the earth under the Edemic covenant is confirmed. Number two, the order of nature is confirmed. Number three, human government is established. And then number four, earth is secured against another universal judgment by water. And it says Genesis 8, 21, which we've already read. And look at chapter nine, verse 11. Chapter nine, verse 11. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the 
earth. All right, everybody see that? Okay, so, so let's go through these. What's the elements of the covenant again? Number one, the relation of man to the earth under the Adamic covenant is confirmed. The order of nature is confirmed. The human government is established. Earth is secured against another universal judgment of water. Right? Number five, a prophetic declaration is made that from Ham will descend an inferior and servile posterity. And he quotes Genesis 9, 24 and 25. Everybody look at Genesis 9, 24 through 25 and see if we discover that. Genesis 9, 24 through 25. And Noah awoke from his wine, because remember he got drunk, right? And took off all of his clothes and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Something had been done. Some people think they just reduce it to he just saw something. Others take it much. Uh, well, we won't go into all the different theories, but there's some, some pretty serious theories about what took place in there. And he said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall, be, shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. So he's saying that what happens here is this a prophetic declaration that from Ham will descend an inferior and servile posterity. Genesis 9, 24 and 25. Everybody see that? Got it? Right. Next, um, he says there's a prophetic declaration is made, number six, that Shem will have a particular relation to Jehovah. Look at Genesis 9, 26 through 27. Genesis 9, 26 through 27. What do you see in Genesis 9, 26 through 27? And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Everybody with me here? Everybody with me? Okay, that's fine. If you're writing, just let me know. If you, okay, I have Shem, right? And Canaan shall be his servants. God will enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants, right? And then he, uh, he goes on, and now listen, this is very important. I don't really see necessarily a peculiar relation to Jehovah in these verses, but this is what he claims. A prophetic declaration is made that Shem will have a peculiar relation to Jehovah. All divine revelation is through Semitic men and Christ after the flesh descends from Shem. So in other words, that there's a specific relation that's going to become basically through, and I think you can see that there's at least some truth to this, because all God's, God's revelation is delivered through whom? Throughout the entire Old Testament. God's revelation is delivered through whom? Through the entire Old Testament. Through Israel, through, through Semitic men, right? And then Christ is a Jew, so then ultimately through him, right? So they're saying that, that, that there, there's a prophetic relationship that's established here. I don't see it clear. I do see the outworking of it. It says blessed, right. But I'm just saying, I don't see it clearly there, but you definitely, there's no way to deny the reality of that fact, right? There's no way to deny the reality. Israel is blessed with everything. They're the ones who are to have God's revelation and they are to share it, all right? Then he says, number seven. Remember, he's got to have seven in all of these. 
a prophetic declaration is made that from Japheth will descend the entire, the, I'm sorry, will descend the enlarged races. Look at Genesis 9.27. God shall enlarge Japheth and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan shall be his servants, right? Okay. All right, well, yeah, well, we'd have to get into territory or race. He says he will descend the enlarged races. And then it says government, science, and art, speaking broadly, or have been japhetic so that history is the indisputable record of the exact fulfillment of these declarations. But he says those are all the prophetic declarations that occur. All right? Under the Noahic covenant. All right? Does that make sense? He says what came from Japheth is, are you ready? Well, he's going to descend the enlarged races, government, science, art, speaking broadly, are and have been Japhetic, so that history is the indisputable record of the exact fulfillment of these declarations. Right? And he says those are all the prophetic declarations that flow from it. Now this one, the only thing here is we do see that human government is established under the Noahic covenant, right? We don't get as many specific rules we're kind of just told what's going to happen, but we do know even with under the Noahic covenant, the human government is going to fail, right? We do know that uh, because we know it's going to fail under the third dispensation as well, all right? Well, the, the, um, there's nothing that says if you don't do this, this is going to happen. So it's kind of just, there's not a lot really established there other than it seems... I don't think so. I mean, the only thing you could say is they're given a responsibility in how to handle, you know, handle capital punishment. They're not always going to do that correctly. Human government is established. We know that's going to fail miserably because it fails miserably under the third dispensation. But it's definitely very different than the Adamic and the Adamic because those are very much more works-based, right? But at least we see the basic elements of the covenant. We'll see when he moves to the fourth one, is there any discussion in what happened under the third? He doesn't mention anything under these. Does that make sense? All right, so that's the, the Noahic covenant. Those are the basic elements of it. Now, going back to the third dispensation where we ended the last hour with, the third dispensation is the dispensation of human government, which we just talked a little bit about because that human government is established within the third dispensation and it's also a part of the Noahic covenant. Now, Schofield is going to be very dogmatic about how this one works. This one does not work very well, all right? So the third dispensation, human government, and this is very important. I'm going to read this again. We talked about it in the last hour, but I want everyone here to hear this. Under conscience, as in in innocency, man utterly failed. So Schofield acknowledges under the first two dispensations, man failed. Under the first two covenants. Man failed. All right, we got to get that just, we got to be so clear on this. There is failure. 
So, because, of, well, I'm not going to say because of the failure, but after this failure, God establishes a third dispensation, right? And this is what he says. Uh, and, uh, and the judgment of the flood marks the end of the second dispensation. So the flood marks the end of the second dispensation. And the beginning of the third. The declaration of the Noahic covenant. Now see, now wait, hang on. He's going to say the Noahic covenant is uh, workspace because he says these exact words. The declaration of the Noahic covenant subjects humanity to a new test. So there you have it. He believes the Noahic covenant is workspace. All right. So everybody got that? What, what, what's obviously then the test under the Noahic covenant? What's going to be the test under the Noahic covenant? It's going to be the human government. It's going to be the human government. The human government is the test under the Noahic covenant, and it's the test under the third dispensation. So there we have it. I forgot, uh, you, when you asked that question, I forgot that we had just literally read that sentence in the last hour. See how quickly we, there's so much we're covering, all right? Now, here's the distinctive feature. This is the distinctive feature of the third dispensation. This is the distinctive feature of the third covenant, the Noahic covenant. You ready? The distinctive feature is the institution for the first time of human government. The government of man by man. This is where this this idea is established. It's in the Noahic covenant. It's in the third dispensation of human government. It's it's a government by man. It's a government of man by man. All right, everybody got that? The high, what's the highest function of this government? It's the judicial taking of life, as we just read a little while ago, right? And who's supposed to take life? Or man is supposed to take the life of man, which then, of course, you have to establish some kind of authority to be able to do that, right? And so this is the establishment of human government, right? The highest function of government is the judicial taking of life. All other Governmental powers are implied in that. It follows that the third dispensation is distinctly that of human government. Man is responsible to govern the world for God. Right? Remember we talked about that this is, this is a part of this dispensation. And where do we see this played out? We talked about it in the last hour. Hey, man was responsible to rule the world for God. Where do we see this play out in biblical uh, revelation? And the nation of Israel, right? They establish a, the- a theocracy. And then they establish a theocratic monarchy. Correct? Okay. This is a key element of the Old Testament. Anyone who's read the Old Testament should clearly have that down, right? So, man is responsible to govern the world for God. That responsibility rested upon the whole race. Now, he says this was the responsibility of both Jew and Gentile unto the failure of Israel under the Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant, we've talked about many times. He says that's where, every, that's where the ultimate failure was. He t- points to the ultimate failure is the Palestinian covenant. Because what, what happened under the Palestinian covenant? Okay, we covered this so many times. The Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy 28 to 30, you're going to go into the land. You take to possession of the land. When in the land, 
do this, 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 and you will be blessed, you will be established, everything's going to be wonderful for you. If you go in and you don't do all of these things, curses, 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 which is going to ultimately bring down their governmental structure and they're going to be taken into captivity. Right? Does that make sense? I cannot, I, I, I cannot stress, I, I don't know how else to try to get this across. We've got to know the Palestinian covenant. We have to know the Palestinian covenant. We, we, right. Okay, I'm just saying we just have to know it because it's so critical because you've got, look, Christianity is divided into two major camps. Some people believe because of the Palestinian covenant, what happened? Israel's done. Done. Right? That's all. That, you, know, you know people who go to churches who believe that. Anyone who goes to a reformed church is probably going to believe that very concept because they're going to be basically all millennial, most cases, and they're going to be covenantal. All right? Guess what? The, they're saying Israel failed. Israel failed. Did they fail that covenant? Yes, everyone should do. Everyone can agree on that. They failed that covenant. So then what do we look for? Was there a new covenant made? Yes. Now, then what do we look for in that new covenant? Does it mention land? Because if it mentions land, that was the whole issue of the Palestinian covenant. Right? Was land. And so they were going to lose the land. But if God promises land again... Why would he promise land again with a covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah unless he's literally making a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and still dealing with the exact same land that was promised early, early on? Okay, does everyone understand? See, that covenant is so important. Well, Schofield thinks it's important because it shows the failure of human government. Because even with their governmental structure, their leadership structure, what do they do? They go in and... They fail. That, that's the point that he's trying to drive home so much, all right? He says, this brought the judgment of, cap, of the captives when the times of the Gentiles began and the government of the world passed exclusively into Gentile hands. He says, because of the, their failure, basically of the Palestinian covenant, what happens to Israel? He just basically says they go into perpetual captivity, right? I know they come back out, but he's like, basically, they just go into captivity, and then that is, brings in the time of the Gentiles. In the time of the Gentiles, who, could, who rules most of the world? Gentiles, right? And he's like, that's, that's because of the failure of the Palestinian covenant. You see how, why he's, he's so, this is so critical to all of this, right? So far, everybody understands that? It says, now this is important. Both Israel and the Gentiles have governed for self and not God, meaning that under the third dispensation and under the third covenant, the Noahic covenant, the third dispensation, which is human government, what, has, what is the test? Human government. Well, they govern for God. And what was the result of that test? Failure. Now, where does Schofield see the first failure of human government? This is, this is where we got a little confused because he, when he starts looking at this dispensation, he's, he goes all the way to Matthew to the judgment of the nations, which we looked at in the last hour. He goes for, but for the dispensation, the dispensation begins in like Genesis 8. And guess where it ends? 11. 
He finds the failure of this dispensation and in a sense this covenant in Genesis 11. Everyone goes to Genesis 11 and what happens? Go to Genesis chapter 11. Everyone should see what happens here. Okay. All right, this is very important. All right, now guess what he has as a title for chapter 11? Well, okay, in the 1917 version, the failure of man under the Noahic covenant. This is the failure under the covenant. And guess what else this is? The failure under the third dispensation. And everyone knows what happens. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, who is speaking? Man to man. Men are coming together. They speak together. And what do they decide to do? Go, let us make a brick and, and burn them thoroughly. And that they, uh, and they had brick for stone, slime they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build up a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be scattered. They don't want to be, go through the earth and fill it. They don't. They want to stay in one place and make a name for themselves. And what do they do? And what happens in verse five? And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they are of one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down there, confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence, from the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of of this is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. From thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. This is the failure of the covenant. This is the failure of the dispensation. They fail, right? Because human government, what did they decide to do? Govern for self, not for God. They they want to establish whose rule? They want to establish whose way? Their way. And this is a failure, all right? Now, he Schofield says this, Genesis 11 and 12 mark an important turning point in the divine uh, dealing. Heretofore, the history has been that of the whole Adamic race. There has been neither Jew nor Gentile, all have been one in the first man, Adam. Henceforth, in the scripture, uh, record humanity must be thought of as a vast stream from which God and the call of Abraham and the creation of the nation of Israel has put Uh, has but drawn off a slender rill through which he may at least purify the great river himself. Israel was called to be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. So he says right here, Genesis 11 marks now a change. Basically, there's you can kind of think about it. He's saying basically there was like one one group, one race, right? And now it's all going to break off into different races and different nations and different everything. And everything's going to be changed from this point forward. But God's going to do what? In the midst of all of these, he's going to reach out and grab a people 
for himself, and that's going to be Israel. Right? That's going to be Israel. But he's marking that there's a dramatic change that takes place. Then guess what happens at the beginning of chapter 12? In the Schofield Bible. The fourth dispensation from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law. The fourth or Abrahamic covenant is established. Now, both concepts are going to show up here. All right? Now, so what do we need to know about the third covenant and the third dispensation? The primary feature of it was human government. And the primary test was that government was to operate for God. And the end result was failure. And then there was dramatic change. Right? There's going to be dramatic change from this point forward. And remember, have all these established the same thing? Now, here's the question. We can, we can, we can dogmatically assert this. All, the failure of human government goes from Genesis 11 all the way through the Bible. Because government over and over and over, whether it's a king of Israel, whether it doesn't matter, they constantly do what? Fail and serve self and serve self and serve self. When we get to the New Testament, I will assert, Jesus doesn't call his people to try to rule the world for God. He calls people to believe in the gospel and follow him. He doesn't call his people to establish a government for God. That concept seems to be completely gone. Now, why is that so important? Because that's the whole concept of dispensationalism, right? Dispensationalism says things operated this way, but they change in the next dispensation. That's the point we have to try to get across. Where others will argue, no, this dispensational thing is ridiculous. But I will say there are clear differences in how things operate in the Bible. You have to be able to acknowledge that. Right? If you don't see these differences, the Bible starts making any sense. All right, so now Genesis chapter 12. All right, here we go. The fourth dispensation. And this dispensation goes from where? Genesis 12. Exodus 19.8. All right. Now, I'm going to just start reading what he says about the four. What is this dispensation called? Promise. The dispensation of promise. All right. There's this, this one seems to have a different tone, doesn't it? Seems to have a different tone. Here we go. The fourth dispensation promise. For Abraham and his descendants, it is evident that the Abrahamic covenant made a great change. All right, and once again, remember he's saying that these dispensations mark what? Time, test, change, if you really want to kind of go through it. Time, test, change. I emphasize this the time and test in the previous hour. Now you can add the third. Time, test, and change. Here we go. Uh, he goes, uh, for Abraham and his descendants, it is, a, it is evident that the Abrahamic covenant made a great change. They became distinctly the heirs of promise. The, that covenant, right? Now, now, now he's going to refer to the covenant, right? Because now this, the dispensation and the covenant are linked together, right? This is the dispensation of promise. What is the covenant? It's the Abrahamic covenant. Everybody got it? You can see the two are linked together. And then guess what he says? And this is very important. That covenant 
is wholly gracious and unconditional. Holy, gracious, and unconditional. That's a massive change. That's a massive change. Does everybody understand that? All conditional and works-based. This one is what? Unconditional. Right? He described it in two ways. Gracious and unconditional. All right, now, why is this important? Listen to me carefully. This has a profound impact on how you read your Bible, right? This has a major impact on your hermeneutic. That Abrahamic covenant. If it's completely unconditional, and it has promises that are specifically for the nation of Israel, then those promises have to be fulfilled because it's an unconditional covenant. Does that make sense? If you say somehow that the Abrahamic covenant is not for Israel or somehow it's made just for a generic people of God or it's for the church, then you can steal it from them. But if it's made for Israel, this has a profound impact on how you read your Bible. Does it not? So you have to look at all the specific... Remember we did this when we dealt with this in, in the past? When we dealt with some of the covenants, I made us outline the specific promises in the Abrahamic covenant. And whenever God would restate the covenant or reestablish this covenant, what are the elements in it? Because those are key. Let's see what he does with all of this, because this is a major turning point, not only in theology, this is very important in in, uh, biblical history, right? The descendants of Abraham had but to abide in their own, uh, I'm sorry, let me read this again. The covenant is holy, gracious, and unconditional. The descendants of Abraham, Abraham had but to abide in their own land to inherit every blessing. Now that sounds a little conditional. Sounds a little conditional. That's my only problem with that, right? But I, I'm going to argue maybe they were to, to, to be in that land, but... Obviously, not being in the land does not throw out the covenant, right? Or, I mean, that would create all kinds of problems. So I'm not a fan of the way that's written. Maybe he will explain. Were they called to go to that land? God was going to bring them to that land, and then all these fulfillments would occur? Yes, but clearly we believe that that, that if the promise is there, they're still going to... I will argue that the part of the covenant was the promise of the land. Not that the staying in the land was conditional. That, that, That almost makes it conditional. So let's see what he says here. He goes, in Egypt, they lost their blessings, but not their covenant. Now, I say, now, I agree with that. In other words, the part of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessings came for being in the land. That's where they get the blessings. They get the blessings by being in the land. When they're not in the land, they don't get the blessing, but they don't lose the covenant. That's... That is a very important distinction. Does everybody catch that? Does everybody understand the significance of that? Meaning, you say, well, Israel, Israel failed here, and they end up and look at all the curses. Yeah, and we would say, but the covenant is unconditional. Guess what? 
may not have the blessings yet, but they still have the covenant. Meaning at some point, they have to get the blessings. And how do they get the blessings? Being in the land. Meaning for this covenant to be unconditional, then there has to be a land element that is unconditional. Do you see how important that is hermeneutically? Do you understand that? That, that sets you apart from a, a whole host of uh, world of Christianity. Anyone you know who goes to a reformed church is going to say you're wrong. They don't believe there's any land promised to Israel. It's gone. Who gets the land promise? The church. And we get it how? Figuratively somehow, allegorically somehow. It's not real land. Now, if the blessings are unconditional, right? But the only way to get those blessings is in the land. And when they're not in the land, they don't get the blessing. Then guess what? At some point, they have to be in the land or God's covenant was not unconditional. And if it wasn't unconditional, what's your other option? Because a lot of people say, well, it's unconditional, but they say it was not made with the nation. They try to move. These are the games you have to play. And this is all hermeneutical issues. You can say, well, I don't care. You better care because you can't understand your Bible. This has major implications in how you interpret the entire Bible. Right? And then what does he go on to say here? So I love that phrase. In Egypt, they lost their blessings, but not their covenant. Everyone should write that down. In Egypt, they lost their blessings, but not what? The covenant. I want everyone to say that again. In Egypt, they lost their blessings, but not their covenant. The dispensation of promise ended when Israel rashly accepted the law. Uh, Exodus 19.8. Is that not weird? Is that weird? Did anybody catch that? Go to Exodus 19.8. This is weird. This is an interesting phrase here. This is an interesting phrase. We have to figure this out. What happens in Exodus 19.8? See, if you'll really study this and read these scriptures, you'll know these scriptures for the rest of your life. And so whenever I ask, you'll go, I know what happens right there. Exodus 19.8. What happens in 19.8? All right. He's saying that they rashly make a claim that they, basically what he's saying is they make a claim that they can do what? We can keep the law. And he says the minute they did that, that ended the dispensation of promise. Because now what did they enter back into? One of works. So what should, now this raises a question. Were they not to accept it? Or were were they to say, Lord, we can't. We can't do this. They were quick to say, we will. And how long did that last? About 15 minutes. And they're taking off their clothes and running around a golden calf, right? And it's interesting, he says that they rashly accept. Like, we could have a big debate on that. Do you think it was a rash decision to say we can do it? I know this. It was a wrong. I know this. Their assessment of their ability was sadly mistaken. And I think that still happens in churches all over the place that says, how do you know you're saved? Look, you do this, 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 this. Seeming to imply that I can do this, this, and this, and this. But anyone who's even honest with themselves know that all the things you're supposed to do you can't do if you really compare it to the law. 
All right? So look, what does he goes on to say here? All right, this is, uh, this is very important, all right? So, um, in Egypt, they lost their blessings, but not their covenant. Uh, the dispensation of promise ended when Israel rashly accepted the law. Grace had prepared a deliverer, Moses, provided a sacrifice for their guilty, for the, for the guilty, and by divine power brought them out of bondage. But at Sinai, they exchanged grace for law. Wow. I don't know about this. Say, now this is where covenant theologians would come in going, this is the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. But something does change dramatically after the law, does it not? I mean, can we agree on that? Because from that point on, they're supposed to keep it and they do what? Fail, 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 fail. And why are they supposed to keep it? I guess you can make an argument. They're the ones who said they would. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how we work. That, that's a strange, and, uh, okay, well, we'll just see how it plays out. Like, try, trying to articulate that, like, that, that one spends some time I have to struggle with, don't you? All right. It says, the dispensation of promise extends from Genesis 12, 1 to Exodus 19, 8, and was exclusively, oh, now listen to this, He says the dispensation of promise goes from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19.8 and was exclusively for Israel. Or Israel, right? Idis, or Idis is how he puts it in the 1917 version. Tish, Israel, Itish, all right? For Israel. Now, why is that important? If the Abrahamic covenant is purely for Israel, exclusively. No, I'm trying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to have you see the theological implications of that statement. If it's for Israel, and he said it was gracious and... Okay, there were two things. He said gracious and unconditional if it's gracious and unconditional and it's for Israel well that it comes into play that somehow what's got to happen that all those promises of the Abrahamic covenant has to be fulfilled and if it's for Israel it has to be fulfilled for Israel in other words he is making he's making an assertion that you cannot look for that fulfillment in anything else you can't look for it in the church or anywhere else He's making a major hermeneutical claim. And either you're going, when you read the Bible, see what you, whether you like it or not, you're reading it either through this lens or you're through, reading it through a covenantal lens. Or you're not reading it through any lens because you have no clue what's going on and you think, but you got to know the system so that you can know what, how you're reading it. That's a major statement. Does everyone understand the significance of that? Like, like I, I feel like we just read something like, everyone should be like, whoa. And I'm kind of getting like, yeah. Okay, like, that's a whoa thing right there, right? That's like, wait, wait, read that again? This is where all of you should be like, stop. That's crazy. But I, 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 don't, I don't feel like you're understanding the significance of it. All I can tell you, whether you like it or not, whether you care or not, 
It's impacted the way you've looked at Christianity your whole life. Because this becomes a, this becomes almost all of evangelical Christianity other than the reformed world has been influenced by this. Okay, and whether good or bad, it's been influenced by this. What does he go on to say? All right. The dispensation must be distinguished from the covenant. Oh, now he's going to separate the two. Why is he going to separate the two? Why do you think he's going to separate the two? What do you think? If you're taking predictions. If we're taking bets. Okay, he is se- Okay, let me read that again. Let me read it again. Right, let me read it again. Here we go. This is very important. All right, everybody ready? All right, okay. The dispensation of promise extends from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19. It's exclusively for Israel. The dispensation must be distinguished from the covenant. Why is he distinguishing it from, did he distinguish the other dispensations from the covenants? No. All of a sudden here, he's like, slow down, slow down. I've got to make a distinction. Why does he have to make a distinction? Oh, very good. Okay, good. Someone's getting it. The dispensation is a period of time where there's a test and there's a great change. This covenant is, what kind of covenant? A covenant of grace and it is unconditional. If he doesn't separate these two, then you're going to say that there was a test under the Abrahamic covenant. They failed said test and guess what that then means? Then the covenant is no longer in effect for Israel and you have to look for it to go to whom? Us. This is very important here. Like, like, I cannot stress to you. I know all this may seem like it's not important. This is literally like the history of Christian theology playing out in front of your very eyes. And whether you liked it or not, you've been making arguments. You've made dogmatic declarations. You've made decisions. You've chosen churches based off your supposed understanding of all of this. And you say, no, I, I just, no, you're, because you're making dogmatic declarations about whether this is right or whether this is wrong. This is what drives me crazy. People in the pew make these decisions and they have no clue what they're talking about. This is complicated stuff. Now, what is he going to do with this? He's going to explain. You ready? We're, we're going to have to finish this and then we'll stop because this is so good. Here we go, right? The dispensation must be distinguished from the covenant. The former is a mode of testing. The latter is everlasting. Uh, is the, the, okay, let me re- read this again. All right. The former is a mode of testing. The latter is everlasting because, or he just says, uh, uh, it is, hang on. He, he writes this in a strange way. All right. The former is a mode of testing. The latter is everlasting because unconditional. All right, so it's everlasting because it is unconditional. He just doesn't put the word. He just says, because unconditional. All right, uh, the dispensation must be distinguished from the covenant. The former is a mode of testing. The latter is everlasting because unconditional. The law did not end 
the Abrahamic covenant, it did not end the Abrahamic covenant, come to whom the promise was made. Only the dispensation as a testing of Israel ended at the giving of the law. So he says the dispensation is a test. Right? It's a dispensation of promise. They're given this great promise. And according to him, what did they do? They failed. And how did they fail? They accepted the law, saying they could do it. That's where they failed in the dispensation. But even though they failed in the dispensation, what did not? Even though the law was there, what did the law not do away with? The Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. So is Israel going to fail under the law? Yes. Did they? He says they abandoned the dispensation of promise, but they did not lose the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we could have debates all day if you think that's the right or wrong way to handle that. You could debate that forever. And you can see why. It's not obviously easy because nobody within church history has agreed on all of this. When Israel says... That's it. That's the law. We're going to do it. Are they rejecting the promise? Some of you are going to say yes. Some of you are going to say no. Now, whether, and, and again, are we bound by the dispensational system? We're not bound by it. So this is for you to figure out. You have to figure this out. When Israel said, we're going to keep the law, is, are they walking away from the promise? Well, we do know this. From that point on, they're going to do what? They're going to fail. 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 Now, if the covenant is not unconditional, then we know they they have failed over and over and over and over and over again. But you see, they're drawing a major distinction between this, right? Here's this wonderful covenant. And, and, And if you read your Bible, you can ask yourself what you see. When you read the wonderful words of that covenant, is it not rat, seem radically different than what you read when you turn to the law? That's, that's, that's typically how we notice the changes, right? You're like, well, wait a minute. This seems way different than that. There seems to be a dramatic change. Usually there's a clear test and a clear failure. The only problem with this one is the failure part's hard to establish. I do like the fact that he's saying the covenant is unconditional. Yes? So, because it, in a roundabout way, if you think about it, the law is going to show them what? And I'll end with this statement. Well, the law is going to reveal their failure and drive them back to what? The unconditional promise. So, how do you want to work that? I don't know, but we're going to have to stop right there. There's a lot there. To, oh, man, that's a, that's a paragraph of paragraphs. That may be one of the most important theological paragraphs ever, all right? Okay, now, he, he wants us to go to Genesis 15 to look at the analysis of the Abrahamic covenant. We'll have to do that tonight. We'll have to take it apart because we want to know the elements of that covenant, do we not? Because that covenant is clearly distinct. He d- distinguishes it from the dispensation. I just, man, that, that, that failure, I don't know what, I don't know if I see that as a failure. I don't know what I, I don't know how I see that. I do know that they, I, I will say they, they made a mistake in saying that they could keep it. 
I will say that as a mistake. All right, there you have it. There's the, there. So we've got how many uh, dispensations? Well, I mean, total. Seven, and how many covenants? Eight. We've looked at how many dispensations so far? Four. And how many covenants we've looked at so far? Four. Oh, we'll do fourth tonight, right. Okay. Because uh, we're under the... Uh, Abraham, is Abrahamic fourth? Yeah, it's fourth. Yeah, it's fourth. Okay. Yeah, we haven't, yeah, we haven't looked at it. Okay. All right, I was making sure. I'm like, I think we're up to fourth on both. Okay, all right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, help us see the absolute significance of some of these theological ideas. Because, Lord, everyone in this room, we've used these concepts and how we've interpreted the Bible, how we've understood the Bible. We've probably even used this and how we've argued with other people. Lord, if, if we are so blinded by a system that we don't even know we're making an argument based on a system, forgive us for that and help us see what the system says so that we can better know if we're reading your word or we're simply reading what someone has written about it. Forgive us for our failures and help us be dedicated to getting better at trusting your word more than anything else. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said...